Cascadia and the edge of the world. Welcome to Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. It's Wednesday, May 27th, 2020, and tonight's guest, Gary Lockman, is the author of many books on the links between consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition, including Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, Beyond the Robot, Life and Work of Colin Wilson, and the secret teachings of the Western world. And his new book, The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. He was also once known as Gary Valentine, while playing in the great band Blondie. And we'll get a little into that as well. Next, on Night Drift. Well, I read recently on your Facebook timeline that you had a dream in 1998 in which a message was imparted to you that echoes today's situation in sort of a stunning way. Can you can you describe this experience? Um, well, um, what I'm currently working on is a book about precognitive dreams. And uh, th- these are dreams in which little bits and pieces of the future, sometimes it's more dramatic, uh, 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 you, you just discover, you find out that you, you know, you, you're, uh, you've got little bits of the future in your, in your dreams, and it's a strange thing, and something I've been recording in my, uh, in my dreams for quite some time now. But I've been going through old journals of mine, and I went through batch from sort of the mid-80s up into kind of uh, the mid-90s. And there was one from 1989 that um, someone in the dream was saying to me, stay at home. Mm. There's no reason to go out. Just stay at home where it's safe, or more or less that. <laughs> and then I just thought, how strange, you know. Uh, I'm not saying that particular dream from 1989 was precognitive in the sense that I knew this was going to happen. But I, I would put it in the realm of, uh, you know, very odd coincidence sliding over into what Jung called synchronicities, which are you know, coincidences that have some kind of meaning uh, behind them, um, something along those lines. Because I mean, that—that's the message that you know we've been hearing for at least until recently, which changed to stay alert. Which I think, yeah, you know, right. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> good luck right. with that one, right? Uh, because you know everyone should be staying alert in the first place. But uh, but you know, stay at home is something. You should, you know, yeah. In any case, wow. so but I mean, so this was the thing. I thought, oh, how strange, you know. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, um, I jotted down things like that for the last 40 years, more or less. Um, and so I'm trying to, what I'm working on now is just sort of finally writing about them. Yeah. So just yesterday in terms of possible synchronicities, my mother-in-law had a precognitive dream that she shared that was uh, mm. fairly stunning and provocative in terms of the future of my wife and I's uh, 
housing situation, perhaps. Right. And uh, yeah, I stumbled upon that and this quest, this writing that you're imparting now with precognitive dreaming and you uh, revealing that uh, it's something that you've been interested in or affected by for a very long Mm. time. Mm. You're, I assume right now in the muck of it. Yeah. In the Mm. process of writing. What about Uh, this is, uh. is, is really propelling you into this direction currently? Um, Well, to tell you the truth, I I don't like, talking about a work in progress that much, but I'll just, I'll just say a bit. Um, I mean, I, um, well, it just, well, what happened was that I gave a talk last year at, um, Brompton cemetery, which is this wonderful cemetery in, um, uh, West side of, uh, London. Mm. And, um, there was, um, a group that organizes talks at, at interesting locations. So it was in a chapel in the cemetery and it was part of something they called the London month of the dead. Mm. So it's a rather romantic kind of thing, gothic. And um, so I gave a talk on hypnagogia and precognitive dreams. And hypnagogia is a sort of umbrella term for a variety of different sort of dreams or hallucinations or visions or even auditory uh, uh, phenomena where you hear voices um, that happen in this brief state um, called the hypnagogic state. Um, that's between when we're falling asleep and we're, you know, we're still awake, but we're on our way to fall asleep. So it's in between uh, waking and sleeping and likewise in the morning, although some, some um, scholars um, uh, slice it very fine here. Uh, mm. and they call it hypnopompic. So in the one you're going down into sleep, the other one you're rising up out of sleep. But in any case, there are these sorts of half dreams and visions and you, people see faces or they hear, you know, sentences, uh, things of that sort. And there's a wonderful book that's just called Hypnagogia that came out in the late 80s by a fellow named Andreas Mavramontis, where he maps it all out. It's the mm. most exhaustive study. And mm. I had written about that um, as a phenomenon itself. I did an article about it, but then also many of the people I've written about, people like Jung and Rudolf Steiner and Swedenborg and Uspensky and others, um, they all were very good hypnagogues in the sense that they all talked about, wrote about their own experiences in that, in that realm. And, um, and I've had some myself and it's actually quite fascinating, you know, and uh, I mean, I've been interested in my dreams for a long time. That's what I say in, in the current thing I'm writing about how this interest goes back to about 1980. Um, but um, so at this talk, I figured, oh, well, if I'm going to talk about hypnagogia, I'll just let me, let me just talk a bit about precognitive dreams just to sort of, you know, tack on something. Because precognition is something that happens in the hypnagogic state as well. The hypnagogic state is actually uh, the one that's most, uh, what do you want to call it, sort of prone or uh, most associated with a variety of different paranormal sort of phenomena, mm-hmm. one of which is precognition, you know, telepathy as well, and clairvoyance or remote viewing, as it's called these days. Mm. And uh, so I thought, oh, I just attacked this on. And I talked about um, <clears throat> people who wrote about it quite a bit. So the, the first person is a fellow named J.W. Dunn, who published a book in the 1920s called An Experiment with Time. And in that book, he discovered that he dreamt the future. Uh, and, and, and he talks about that. And then another person was J.B. Priestley, you know, who's a very well, well-known English writer uh, in the last century. He's not as um, uh, read that much these days, but he wrote a lot of plays having to do with time and time loops and mm. a play called Time in the Conways and, 
and so on and and so on and so on. So I was talking about that, and just at the end, I tagged on a couple of dreams of my own, which I had mentioned here and there in in different sort of books and footnotes. But I hadn't. Uh, well, actually, aside from an article I wrote quite some time ago, back in '97, mm. um, when I did one article about all this. I mean, I haven't really, you know, sort of uh, specifically addressed it. So it was after that talk. Uh, what happened the next day was um, when I looked on uh, Twitter. Someone who was at the talk had sent, a, had posted a tweet, and she said, "Oh my God, I was at this talk about precognitive dreams, and I did, you know, what this guy said. It was basically, I said, just write your dreams down, mm-hmm. and then, you know, pay attention, stay alert <laughs> uh, for the day." And um, she said, "Oh my God, it's true." And what she said was that um, she had she had a dream in which she was picking a hedgehog up, which is a common animal here i don't know if you see them too much out where you are but um and she sort of saw a hedgehog and she picked it up out of the road and took it you know over to the side the pavement or up in the grass or something like that um so it would be safe it wouldn't get run over Mm. and she said the first thing she saw in her twitter feed was a post about how to protect the hedgehogs (laughs) and so she said oh my god you know and i said yeah that's it it's not exactly it it's 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 uh, subject to what's called symbolic distortion. So mm. it's uh, although many precognitive experiences can be you know carbon copies or or pre copies, <laughs> you call it. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that's so when that happened, I thought, okay, you know, yeah, maybe I'll, let's let's see. So I just talked to um, one of my publishers here, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's going to be a relatively short book too. And yeah. It's kind of a pers- personal approach, so it's not. Um, I'm not trying to explain it, but just sort of this is my experience of it, as it were. Yeah. Perhaps with the uh, uh, rule lines in the back, a couple pages for people to start in on their own dreams. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. Sure. We could do that. Please. Yeah. Write them down. Uh, very fascinating. I can't wait to hear what your interpretation of that is and mm. uh, dig into that book. But for now, I-, I was curious, what was your inciting incident for the exploration of the occult? Oh, um, well, it, it wasn't one particular thing. I mean, I've told the story a lot. It was, uh, what happened was that I just um, came across um, a very good book about it. And this was in 1975, um, many moons ago, when I was living in New York on the Bowery and um, in the early days of Blondie. And I was living there with um, Chris Stein, the guitarist, and Debbie Harry. Um, and uh, they themselves had a kind of pop, you know, fun interest in um, that sort of thing. So, you know, mm. there were some pentagrams around and candles and the I Ching and things like that. Mm. And, um, but also where we were living on the Bowery, um, the fellow who sort of was renting the, the floor to us, he was very interested in Aleister Crowley, you know, the great, dark magician, a notorious dark magician of sure. the 20th century. And um, he had um, he had a pack of Crowley's tarot deck, which at the time was relatively rare, and he would do these readings and he, paintings based on the tarot cards. And uh, I just started getting interested in it. I mean, I wasn't interested in the occult per se before then. I mean, uh, it's just in the forms of, like, you know, horror fiction, H.P. Lovecraft. Or, right. 
horror films. Um, I didn't really take it seriously. So, but in that context, I said, oh, this is interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff left over from the previous generation, this kind of cultural jeopardy from the, from the late sixties. So, you know, the I Ching, the Timothy Leary's books and things of that sort. And I came across a copy of a book that literally changed my life. Uh, it was just called The Occult and it was by a British writer named Colin Wilson. And it was just this fascinating history, but also f- exploration into it. I mean, I want to say it's philosophical, but it, it, it's a page turner. So it's not, you know, mm. it's not heady and academic in any way, but it's very, very well read and he's very exciting uh, writer in the sense that he really gets into the ideas and explores them and he associates them with so many things. And what ha- it just wasn't a book about spells or witchcraft or things of that sort. It was a yeah. you know, readable kind of narrative history and then philosophical exploration, mostly about consciousness. And I just became fascinated with it. And, I mean, I subsequently wound up writing a book about Wilson himself many, many right. years later after he died. But that was it. I mean, once, and then it was a good time for someone to get interested in that sort of thing because in New York then there was um, kind of an occult boom in the publishing world. So there were lots of books and lots of cheap reprints of, you know, classic texts that were, I guess, public domain by then. And I just, you know, and there are wonderful places like the old Weiser's bookshop, which isn't there anymore. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So at the same time that I was first playing Blondie and hanging out CBGBs and I was, I was reading all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I will have introduced you in a bio segment before this as uh, the great Gary Valentine. But uh, <laughs> offhandedly, I also I learned from your work that um, someone like Blavatsky was a uh, popular, mm. which to me oh, yeah. uh, uh, appears to perhaps be the first straight edger. And <laughs> and oh. many of my listeners will know about how things like New Thought and um, PMA or Positive Mental Attitude greatly mm. influenced the New York punk scene. So, you know, my question is, is, is why is it that musicians, artists, uh, multi-hyphenate creatives are seemingly more prone to the exploration of the occult and the supernatural? Um, well, I mean, there's a long history of music and, and the occult, the supernatural, you know, yeah. Paganini and the devil's trill and Tartini and, and, and all that, and then Robert Johnson selling his soul, um, you know, to the devil and the crossroads. And I, I would say, just you know, um, creative pursuits and something like the occult or mystical or you know, um, exploring further reaches of consciousness would be something that not exactly the same thing, but occupying the same kind of space. Yeah. As it were. I mean, and, you know, they both deal with the unconscious and the sense of inspiration in some way. I mean, music has always been a part. I mean, I mean, what you have happening now is a whole kind of self-conscious movement known as occulture, you know, very loose. But uh, I mean, just fundamentally, you know, it's either some cultural kind of activity that's very informed by occult ideas or an occult activity practice that, um, is likewise, you know, um, uh, culturally sophisticated, let's say. Mm. And, you know, um, there's, there's, I've spoken at quite a few um, sort of conferences on that, and there's lots of literature about it and things of that sort. So, I mean, there's a self-conscious kind of um, way of blending these two things uh, together. So it's not only music, but it's also an art things of that sort but i mean um i mean in the 60s it was something that was very very popular you know i mean obviously you know 67 the beatles had growing up 
Sergeant Pepper, and he was the hottest thing in town. And at, out of that time, I mean, things changed, but he kind of remained a, a pop a pop icon. Crowley was there because he was, right. you know, the wild man, this wild man. He was this yeah. bad boy. He was doing all the drugs and all the sex and everything like that. You know, giving the finger to society and so on. So, yeah. um, I mean, but, you know, if you look back at the 60s, that my first book, Turn Off Your Mind, is about the influence of occult ideas on pop culture in the 60s. I mean, other people were, you know, part of that as well, Blavatsky and others, and then they, they kind of lost that that pop um, association, but, but Crowley kind of kept his, uh, kept his, you know, he was he was still uh, a part of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's different levels. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, you said you're tapping into the unconscious, you know, um, that kind of thing. You're sort of getting critical conscious ego out of the way and allowing uh, deeper you know, energies to come out, as it were, if I'm not right. waxing too, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. too mystical here. Right, right, right. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it appears as if, you know, Crowley is a, a sort of an, an entryway in, into this because of the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, mm, yeah. the, the, the sort of the cool factor of digging into uh, such an esoteric individual and, and, uh, and thought leader of the occult where, uh, you'll you'll see a lot of folks will then go from Crowley to um, other books. Individuals mm-hmm. tuck themselves into a deeper understanding that actually starts perhaps affecting their level of consciousness to the mm-hmm. subjects at hand. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean you know that that, that, that can happen. I mean it, it it all depends on the person. I mean um, I mean I'm not claiming any particular credit, but it actually did. You know when I say it changed my life, I mean it did because eventually left music, not necessarily because of that, but um, and, and certainly in some ways because I was reading and reading and reading all this stuff and my, my, what, was, what my mind was focusing on were sorts of things that you couldn't really quite communicate in a song anymore. Yeah. Uh, you could, you could oh, sort of stretch it in a certain direction, but once you, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not, in a way, I mean, I say jokingly say I was getting too smart for rock and roll. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for my, you know, from, I mean, you know, the, I mean, I, I was a songwriter for a while. I mean, I don't have a, you know, fantastic list, but you know, I've got a, f- a few and yeah. it just, it just seems to me you can, I mean, one of the people I really liked at the time when I was playing was Tom Verlaine, who was the, you know, guitarist and wrote most of the music and sang in this um, band television who uh, were part mm-hmm. of the CPGB scene. And um, I thought what he was doing and in, in the songs he were writing was, should we say it? Uh, to me, they were approaching the the kind of um, level of expression of, of, of poetry, mm. uh, um, and and with, without kind of bending and breaking the form of the pop song. Because when you try to do it, it becomes too too intense, too self conscious. Mm. Or on, on the other side, you have these epic kind of you know operatic sorts of things that are unlistenable after, you know, very soon after they're written. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so I mean, so I, I just felt like, well, you know, I, I wrote some songs, and I just felt like I just couldn't, I couldn't, and I, you know, I just couldn't communicate in that way anymore. Yeah. So that's eventually I stopped, and I, you know, just I, the last thing I did, I just was a guitarist. Was it, was that a hard decision to make at the time, or oh, did just, it just uh, seem really. natural? I mean, well, I mean, different things were happening. I mean, or actually not happening because I mean, my own band didn't get a. Uh, a record deal. So that was another thing. I, mean, I had a band called The No that I formed in Los Angeles um, after leaving Blondie. And then we, 
we were we were a bi-coastal band we played la and new york a lot this is in from like 78 to about 80 yeah yeah uh and then um but you know after punching it out and blah, 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 we did a couple you know i did a 45 and then on, on my own with the no and then um just sort of packed it in and then i i was asked to play on two north american tours in the pops band and some friends of mine were playing actually clem burke the drummer from blondie played on them tour. Wow. so that was fun to do but after that that was kind of like okay i did my sex drugs and rock and roll and by that time i was you know i was thinking okay i didn't want to do this anymore and um i didn't self-consciously go on a quest but i did you know and I was I, I was lucky enough to make some money from one of my songs too. I didn't have to really do anything immediately. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the early '80s, I went on this kind of mini search for the miraculous, as I, I later tended to call it, going to places like Glastonbury, Shard oh. Cathedral, and uh, but on one of those things, I made a pilgrimage now to Cornwall, where Colin Wilson was living. Yeah, and this was after I was you know read many of his books and all that. But, so that that you know that shifted into a whole other thing, you know. We'll be right back with Gary Lockman here on Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. Follow Euphemed on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. Listening to Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. Well, it, it's interesting because uh, I think a lot of people share this story with you, right? I mean, they find uh, an author, a writer, uh, a, a philosopher who is able to crack open their mind and 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 sort of crack open their heart a little bit and you become almost a bystander to your curiosity, to your wonderment almost, right? Mm. Some of this stuff seemingly can take you over in in the most astounding Mm. ways and almost lead you down a trail until you realize you're a part of it all. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you go to, I mean, I've I've been, you know, reading, I sort of started reading Collins books in 1975, so that's, you know, do the math. That's quite some time ago. So, um, and obviously, meeting someone for that length of time, and then you you change, and then my relationship changes. And then after he died, that changed too. And then, I mean, I was determined to write a book uh, about him. I mean, fundamentally, my my book is Beyond the Robot, you know, Life and Work, Colin Wilson. It's 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 my attempt to put all in one package, you know, um, his, his work, which is over, I mean, his career, I mean, he died in 2013 and his first book came out in 1956. So he was around for quite some time as well. And he wrote 
well over 150 books and uh, on a remarkable diff different number of things, but all sort of focused on the essential kind of existential questions of, of freedom and consciousness and, and, you know, blending into what we would call esoteric or spiritual questions about being awake and conscious and uh, exploring, exploring different areas of yourself and, and um, uh, sort of frontiers of psychology and so on. And um, yeah. And then having written that book, it's, you know, relationship changes so uh no but, uh one of the great things about reading his books is that he's interested in lots of different things so he's writing about lots of other writers and authors and philosophers and so on and if you follow up these leads you end up getting like a liberal arts, liberal arts education right it's very incredibly wide reading and um i guess i've picked up i guess i've picked up something like that or maybe I'm just determined to tell everybody how many books I, I read, but you know, <laughs> to write <laughs> my own books, I, I just, I sort of say, Oh, here, you know, I, it's, I'm kind of doing the same sort of thing in the sense of, well, here, 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 these things kind of add up. Yeah. Right. Me, kind of put them, put them, I mean, it's not a system in any way. It's just sort of like, you know, you, you, you find different people talking about, you know, the same ideas in sort of different ways and you line them up with some perception or angle or perspective that you're, um, taking it from and then you can kind of tell a story you know i mean i, I guess that's what i like why i like doing biographies because I, I it's so i feel like i'm sort of telling a story of ideas so it's something along those lines mm, yeah and, but I mean, narrative, also narrative philosophy yeah it per personalizes it and it it shares the emotion mm. it shares the humanity of these individuals and where these ideas come from and that's so goddamn important yeah i mean this idea that we can consume sort of these endless tomes of philosophy that uh, feel almost medicinal in some ways. It, it, I think it, de detach, it detaches itself from what is inherent in, in, in a lot of this, which is the connection to the, the person themselves. And that's mm, what I really mm, enjoy about mm. your work is, is getting the opportunity to actually meet the, the, the people behind these ideas. And, and honestly, for me, uh, your, your book on Crowley was much more digestible and something I could connect with much better, mm. even within his own philosophy, than reading mm. his own work for myself. <laughs> you know, so I think oh, it, right. it has a way oh, of illuminating these ideas in a, in, a, in a positive way and also showing them in their bare naked form that is really, really? Uh, fascinating. And I can see uh, that going about that process of writing a book of that nature and finally finding yourself writing about Colin Wilson in that way must have been an immense pleasure, but also an incredible challenge. Yeah. Mm, mm. Oh yeah. I mean, and I, I sort of set it up, you know, up front and you know, it's, it's, it's no secret that he was a mentor and things of that sort. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be a sort of critical warts and all biography. Yeah. And I even say it's kind of a biography of ideas and it's the sort of book he would have written <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, the people that he writes about. I mean, that, that was uh, not a conscious aim, but it was something that it was going to be like that anyway. Um, and, uh, um, it gave me an opportunity to repay a debt. Mm. And um, also, I guess, to some degree, um, having done that, um, freed me some way from, you know, um, uh, relationship in, in that way. Uh, mm. So, not, you know, it's, I mean, that's a whole learning process too as you go, as you go along, you know, 
um, well, I guess with any sort of form of self-expression that way, you know, if you look back at earlier work and then gradually as you go on, <clears throat> you get your voice, it's still your voice, but it changes the perspectives a bit uh, different, um, perhaps a bit more authority or something along those lines or whatever. And um, yeah, um, no, that was something um, I, I have to say, I'm very, very happy that I was able to do that book. And that's well, one one reason was that I had Pretty good editor at Penguin at the time it was Mitch Harvitz. Um, mm. Mitch is great. Commissioned quite quite a few quite a few of my books. Um, going back to the Steiner book, uh, uh, I mean, I think yeah, Dark Star Rising was the last one. Um, so you know, for many years, and um, yeah, and uh, I sort of convinced him that Wilson was important, and he needed. I mean, he's known, but he's not known. You know, he's and yeah. some people know of him, but they don't. So, and I'm not trying to sell him as uh, you know this lost forgotten genius is saying well you know the, 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 his works are very important you know um and they certainly informed the way i've looked at, at things and uh, and introduced me to other things and then you kind of shuffle all that around and you know you get to a certain point where you can start saying well actually you know i think you're wrong about him <laughs> going back and reading like you know ah, and you know so you can even that and that's when you're even more free i tell you something wasn't about him it wasn't about wilson but it was this is um a while ago when i i um i was in actually was in munich um a friend who, who lived there invited me there i was there for the first time and i brought with me a copy of um this book called the young cult by mm. richard knoll and uh, i think about the 90s or something and but it, it's 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 a real kind of attack on Jung as as um this kind of uh, elitist uh uh, you know, Gnostic cult leader who wants to set up a whole kind of religion around himself and so mm. on. So, I mean, it's it's subsequently been sort of discredited. Yeah. And um, in some ways, I just felt like, well, so what? <laughs> so what if he did? He's, he's, he's still really interesting. But the thing about it was that um, it, uh, a lot of what was happening in what Knowles was talking about was taking place in where it was in Munich. It was an area called Schwabing, which is this sort of countercultural kind of area. And so I was in the midst of it, walking around, reading the book. And I didn't care that he was critical. Critical. I, I felt like I could read it without having to say, oh, oh, no, you know, oh, 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 you know, you know what I mean? Without having to come and defend Jung in some way. Mm. It, and so that, um, I think when you can do that, when you can read some um, critical work about, you know, someone you like, one of your heroes or whatever, um, you don't have to agree with it, but you can read it without cringing and immediately having to, you know, defend Mm. Um, uh, uh, then you have a kind of distance from it, you know. Um, and so, I mean, this is, you know, this is the basic kind of critical stance. And, you know, we, we, you can't remain a student all the time. You can't remain um, just in that position. Otherwise, your teacher is a bad teacher. And also in kind of in a way, I guess, I guess you can bring in something like Harold Bloom's, uh, what is it? Uh, anxiety of influence where you there's a kind of edible relationship where um in a certain way you have to um sort of take down the generation you know or you know your hero whatever it is in order for you to establish yourself and i wouldn't say necessarily did that with colin but i would say something along those lines not self-consciously because I, I, I subsequently just understood this is what i was doing i wasn't trying to do it at the time um, was doing something like that in this book, Turn Off Your Mind, which is a book about the 60s, which um, 
um, it's uh, you know it's 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 critical. I mean, it's it's written with a kind of um, critical tone, sort of turning it around, saying, "Oh well, it was flower power, but actually, you know, the roots of flower power were in the dark soil of whatever Satan." something along those lines you know mm. i mean it's a funny it's a it's an interesting book because a later edition of it on the back cover i i, I say that it's acclaimed by fundamentalist christians and satanists alike <laughs> and they because they both liked it they both liked it i mean you know so um i mean I, I, why it's not a worldwide success i don't know it appealed to everybody <laughs> right um well uh thank you for sharing that uh, what i would like to just ask you about is this new book mm. what oh, can yeah. people expect once digging into the return of holy russia uh, a, a, a page turner yeah a good read it's uh it's yeah it's it's um what can i say um i hope they people who get it understand that you know the the the, the, the people i'm writing about these philosophers from what's known as the silver age who uh are getting a retread with putin Putin has gone back into this pre-Bolshevik time of great creativity and a kind of intense spirituality and fascination with the occult um, in this period called the Silver Age, just before the Bolshevik boot came down. Um, to he's 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 dipping into that uh, to uh, sort of give you know which um, uh, is kind of new new identity that it's been looking for for a while. And um, and I hope they just get as, as interested and exciting just in the history of Russia as I got myself. I mean, that sounds mm. like a tough, uh, a, t- a tall order. <laughs> but um, what happened to me was that when I I just I, I, I mean I, I got well, the reason I got interested is that as I, I saw in an article that Putin had back in 2014 or 15 he um, he had a reading list that he gave to his regional governors. On the annual meetings of you know United Russia, and on the reading list were these philosophers from this period called the Silver Age, Vladimir Soloviev, Nikolai Brudayev, I mean both of whom I'd read, mm. and uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I mean, not too many world leaders that I know of. Not that I know of too many world leaders, but you know they don't usually give out um, you know uh, very uh, you know intense spiritual philosophers to you know to read um, and. And so, uh, but then I saw the, the response from the West and people like David Brooks, um, the New York Times and some other journalists, that they're characterizing these philosophers from the Silver Age as these kind of messianic, um, kind of, you know, uh, pan-Russian um, mystical philosophers who taken up this idea of, of, you know, somehow Russia as having this uh, peculiar role in world history Mm. And um, it was it was going to spread some kind of universal kind of belief or this new religion kind of thing, and which was something that was, you know, talked about in different ways uh, in in the period, the Silver Age, and that's how I start the book, uh, talking about you know Rudolf Steiner giving lectures about this in mm. Paris, and um, but once I started looking into that and just sort of following up the line of, okay, why is it Holy Russia? You know, there's, okay, yes, it's got to do with they're adopting the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, Christianity, and Constantinople was the second Rome after the first Rome, and then when that fell, Moscow somehow taken on that mantle. And mm. again, this is another kind of messianic um, vision. And um, I just started getting very interested in this kind of story, you know, 
And, uh, you know, why, why did people like Steiner and Oswald Spengler, who's, uh, again, he's not, he's not read that much these days. Yeah. Um, the German philosopher of history who wrote this book called Decline of the West, you know, arguing that Europe and the West was going down, but the East, you know, there was going to be a new culture arising and mm. Russia at the time, you know, pre-Bolshevik was sort of in the running for that. And Hermann Hesse and, and other people at the time having this kind of um, sensibility that you know, something was coming from that, you know, part of the world that was going to change things. And then the, you know, the Bolshevik boot came down and um, that, that, that spirituality and, and the, all of that um, was quelched. And, you know, many of those philosophers were shipped out of the country on what's known as the philosophy steamers, you know, these mm. boats that Lenin exiled all these um, thinkers on, you know, because he didn't want to shoot them because the press would be too bad. Mm. But he didn't want them to stay, to stick around. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that mirrors Hitler's own move. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, I think often he, well... I don't know if he was as kind as putting them on boats. Well, <laughs> in a different, in a different, yeah. different right. kind of mode of transport. But right. um, no, no. I mean, uh, and it, it, it's um, what do you want to say? Um, it's a different history than the West. I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, I, I certainly didn't know much about Russian history. That's why I said I got excited. It just became an interesting story for me. And I, and I like learning. One of the reasons um, I like, you know, writing the books. I mean, I, I don't know all this stuff and then just sit down and decide to, you know, oh, yes, I will now, you know, I will now uh, impart all of my knowledge about this. I mean, I, I have to go out and find out about it. You know, I don't know about it. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a quick learner and I, I can turn it quickly from, you know, notes into, well, with any luck, knock on wood, uh, you know, readable paragraphs and things of that sort. So, um, uh, so I, I just was fascinating learning about all this stuff. Yeah, and um, and one one of the interesting things is that you know uh, it, it seemed that at that time in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, when in many ways the kinds of problems we're facing today were you know starting to you know build up this momentum um, um, uh, in different ways, the thinkers in in the in, in Russia before the Bolsheviks. Um, saw what was lacking in the Western consciousness and the Western approach, this mm. utilitarian, you know, pragmatic, practical, material, materialistic, um, you know, what was missing, the soul, you know, to, to give, give a simple answer. Yeah. And uh, this is why you have this tre tremendous kind of intense spirituality in people like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and so many and, even Gogol a little bit earlier, all these kind of people. And um, so there seemed to be something that this, this generation of the Silver Age philosophers had something to offer to the West, and then it was, you know, it was aborted. Mm. So I guess my argument is, you know, whether Putin's reading them or not, or for whatever reason he's reading them for, it seems to me that we can still learn something from them that we can apply today, because they were talking about the same kinds of problems, or, or the root, the root cause, let's say, you know, the, which is fundamentally sort of the, you know, the, the, the Western me, you know, versus the Russian we, if you right. put it that way. Yeah. Which is, I mean, 
we're seeing that all over the world right now, this same uh, conversation going on. And, you know, listen, many of my mystic would, friends would say that uh, history doesn't repeat. It simply rhymes. Mm. And that's what I felt reading <laughs> this book. Turning the pages, mm. I felt transported to the Silver Age, which felt mm. seemingly uh, eerily so similar to what's happening now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the ability to gleam information or insight uh, of, of some of the great thinkers of that time uh, is, is, a, is a fascinating study in uh, how we can shape our future from our past or how at least we can mm. learn from the past oh. and we cannot forget well, this that. is yeah yeah i mean this is it i mean there's um there's a wonderful book um called the face of glory by a fellow named william anderson um he was a poet but he also wrote about um the gothic cathedrals and the green man he had a book called the green man but he has this notion of what he calls the great memory and um, it is sort of like, it, it, it basically is the culture, you know, the, the literature, the art, the music, the architecture, you know, the religion, all of, all of this that's come down to us. And um, each time, you know, generation or crises or challenge uh, that arises is not the same, but similar to, and, you know, our response to it is not the same, but we can, as you just said, can learn from in the past. And there's so many, and this is, Anderson comes up with lots of examples where, you know, parallels in sort of history, you know, centuries separating them, but um, kind of similar challenges and similar responses. But this is something that the Russians are supposed to, you know, uh, are supposed to have been very good at by taking stuff from others or having it come to them and informing them and then changing it around and making it some kind of uniquely their own. Mm. And one of the things that I say in the book is that, um, you know, at the end of it, I, you know, I, I say it's pretty clear what, you know, uh, Russia wanted to get from the West and say in the form of Peter the Great or something like that. They want basically modernity. You know, they wanted to have, you know, logic and reason and all of that and order and, uh, you know, uh, all of the virtues that have, you know, uh, gone into creating, you know, our, our, our modern world uh, and, uh, and pulling Russia out of the Middle Ages. But what, what did Russia have to give to the West? And I say it's something that the West had, but didn't want. And the Russians picked up <laughs> oh, on it. And, 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 wow. and, and this, is, this is the whole kind of romantic, you know, sensibility, the romantic movement. And, uh, and mostly in the form of this German philosopher that meets uh, 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 Schelling, who strangely enough has come into vogue uh, again, I shouldn't say nobody reads, but there's, a, a, there's an interest in him in the alternative world a lot because he's he's um, he's very nature oriented, but he's trying to he's trying to arrive at a kind of um, uh, you know, compatible harmony between the human and and the and and the, and the natural world. Where, and to put it in a nutshell, he says nature is visible mind, and mind is invisible nature, and so not to mm. subsume one one into the other. But, um, and I mean, he's, you know, one of these, uh, well, he's not as difficult as some of the other ones, but he's, he is one of these very uh, expansive, romantic, um, you know, sort of metaphysical, poetic thinkers. And he's around the same time as Hegel and all that. But um, he, he had a big impact on, on Russian philosophers before um, Marx and all that, which um, is, you know, the, that's the thing. I mean, I was talking to somebody last night in an interview. And the person said, I just never thought of Russia as being spiritual. And I was saying, well, mm. probably I would suspect it's because you say Russia and you think 
uh, communism. You know, you think Russia and you think Marx, you think the Soviet Union, and this is, you know, from the generation I came from and you know, one before, that, that's what, what it was. And, um, you know, it's one of these funny things that people are born after you. You can't, you can't imagine that it's actually like that. But, you know, some people are born after the fall, <laughs> after the fall of, of, the, of the Berlin Wall and after all that. And they, they don't remember the Soviet Union. They don't yeah. remember any of that. And, um, um, so, you know, when they think Russia, they, I guess they just, you know, they think Putin and they think, I don't know, oligarchs and people getting assassinated or something sure. like that. Uh, right. uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't mean to say that's all that <laughs> Russia is about. Um, but, um, but, you know, Russia had this intense spirituality. That's why it was called Holy Russia. Yeah. It, it got that title after the Napoleonic Wars when it saved, uh, saved Europe, saved all the monarchies in, in Europe um, from... Um, uh, the little corporal. Well, we find ourselves right now in not a Siberian winter, but more of a viral winter. And it's mm. the perfect time to dive back into the history and philosophies that have mm. been there uh, waiting to be rediscovered and relooked upon. And Gary Lockman does a fantastic job in presenting these in a, a narrative way that keeps you turning the pages and keeps you invested in the personal stories behind this as well. Gary, what is the easiest way for people to find your work? I guess it's on Amazon, you know, or just Google me. Um, I guess that's it. You know, I, I have a, a blog. It's uh, all one lowercase Gary Lockman.co.uk. Um, you can leave a message for me there if you want on uh, Twitter so I mean, I'm out in the world, you know, um, like others. But yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us, Gary. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. Thank you to our guest, Gary Lockman. For more of his work, find links in the show notes. And thank you as well to our sponsors, Spotify and Anchor. For everything you've met, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. Also there, you will find Euphemet merchandise. My cat just jumped up onto my table as I was saying this. Thank you, cat, for disturbing this outro. And thank you for listening. This is Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up. Follow Euphemet on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. 